Welcome to the Creating Wealth Show with Jason Hartman. You're about to learn a new slant on investing, some exciting techniques, and fresh new approaches to the world's most historically proven asset class that will enable you to create more wealth and freedom than you ever thought possible. Jason is a genuine, self-made multimillionaire who's actually been there and done it. He's a successful investor, lender, developer, and entrepreneur who's owned properties in 11 states, had hundreds of of tenants and been involved in thousands of real estate transactions. This program will help you follow in Jason's footsteps on the road to your financial independence day. You really can do it. And now, here's your host, Jason Hartman, with the complete solution for real estate investors. Welcome to episode 1532-1532. Today, our guest will be Lawrence Ball, professor of economics at Johns Hopkins University and research associate for the National Bureau of Economic Research. He's also a consultant to the IMF, the International Monetary Fund. So this will be an interesting interview, and we actually had him on again. This interview is in COVID-1984 years. It's a couple months old. But in that time, it's it's even older. <laughs> so just keep that in mind, but still totally relevant. So uh, and then we just had him on the show again. So we're going to we're going to have him on again soon here in the next. Maybe we'll we'll play that one next month or something like that. Anyway, so the Banana Republic, my former hometown of Los Angeles, has launched a one hundred million dollar coronavirus rental assistance fund. They say that the fund will help nine, well, up to, they say up to 9,000 renters stay in their homes. Now, a little quick math there. That means each renter, if they help up to nine of the full 9,000 people that they're saying up to is the number, right? They might help 3,000 people, okay? Then that means that would be earmarked $11,101 per renter. Yet they say in the article that eligible renters can receive up to $10,000 in rental subsidies from the county. So that means that I guess the administration cost is at least $1,100 per renter. Now, I don't know about you, but that seems absolutely ridiculous that it would cost more than 10% to dole out that money. Wow. Yes. Some some corrupt officials will be grabbing their, uh, their share of that money, as with any government program. That's the way it works. Cantillon effect people, the people close to the money, get the most of it. And with income property, you essentially can, in a sense become one of those people that takes advantage of the Cantillon effect. Now, we talked about that several episodes ago. Go back and review it if you want to know more. This is also interesting before we get to our guest. New York City, of course, has suffered from a massive, massive, massive decline in tourism. And this just gives you a perspective of how massive that decline is. Check this one out. So the Empire State Building... They have a a well-known observation deck. You know, it's been in many movies and romantic meetups at the uh, observation deck in the Empire State Building. What movie was that? From Here to Eternity or something like that? I I don't know what movie. But anyway, one of those old movies. And by the way, you know, I always tell you, you should watch old movies and old TV shows. And uh, 
By the way, there's a great YouTube channel. Forgive me, I can't remember the name offhand, but I am now watching his documentary series on the uh, Pandora's Box. Okay, Pandora's Box. But before that, I watched a series with uh, three documentary films. It's, you know, three plus hours. The subject of the century of self, where it talks about none other than Edward Bernays. I have talked to you about him before, and I think it's very interesting to understand the history of Edward Bernays and modern advertising and how psychology has changed amongst consumers who used to really just be consumers of necessities and how consumer culture, which is 70% of our economy in the United States, really just grabbed hold in the 20s. Very, very interesting stuff for sure. Okay, so Empire State Building, in the second quarter of this year, known as the COVID quarter, Q2 of 2020, the Empire State Building's observation deck earned $86,000. $86,000 in revenue. Now you might think, well, that's okay for an observation deck. Multiply that times four. They're making almost $400,000 a year. But guess what? Guess what the compared to what question will tell you? Compared to what? Well, how about compared to the second quarter of the prior year? That same observation deck in the second quarter last year made $32,900,000. Yes, that's staggering. Now, this is from the Wall Street Journal, very credible news organization from the WSJ. So there you go. There's a comparison. You can really just see how... It's just a, it's a monumental tectonic shift, of course. Huntsville, Alabama, one of the several Alabama markets where we have uh, properties for you. Go to jasonartman.com slash properties, check them out. In the median, this is also Wall Street Journal, the increase in median sales price for homes in Huntsville, Alabama during the same quarter, the COVID quarter, Q2, of 2020, the highest quarterly home price increase for any city tracked by NAR, the National Association of Realtors, was 13.5% increase in median sales price in Q2. That is unbelievable. Wow. Both of these numbers I've just shared with you are absolutely staggering. They are really, really, really amazing. Now, On a totally unrelated note, well, no, it's not unrelated. It is related. Of course it's related. But just, I want to impart to you the idea again that I have been saying since 2003 about how the U.S. is such a giant housing market and consists of so many markets and how if you are listening to or reading and following the information that is put out in the lamestream media, the mainstream media, you will just be so deceived about what is going on in the world. It's absolutely staggering. And I'm not talking about politics here because that's a whole nother topic. I'm just talking about the real estate market. In the United States, there are 392 
MSAs, or Metropolitan Statistical Areas, and 3,007 counties. Just again, think about that for a moment. That, that is absolutely mind-boggling, because even in those 3,007 counties, there are many sub-markets in those counties. Take, for example, the one I just talked about, where I grew up. L.A. County, Los Angeles County, Southern California. I mean, how many different areas, neighborhoods, and real estate markets are there in L.A.? Absolutely, absolutely staggering number of markets. Really, really staggering. All right? Another one for you before we get to our guest. Just one more thing. Shopping malls. We all know shopping malls are in big, big trouble. And it is uh, absolutely staggering what is going on with the retail apocalypse that has only been accelerated by COVID-1984. And now we are seeing, by the way, I do understand it's, I added the 84 to that. You do get that, right? That I'm, I'm tying it in with the Orwellian nightmare that we are starting to experience and will only get worse. Get ready, folks. Why is that? Wait till the contact tracing begins. Wait till there's an excuse to put chips in us so they can trace where we've been and who we've been in contact. First, it'll start with our phones, then our smartwatches, and then it'll be the chip. I had Catherine Albrecht on uh, my Holistic Survival Show several years ago talking about the implanted chips that are coming. Yeah, they're coming, folks. They're coming. Remember... When the digital dollar arrives or the digital global currency, that'll be the way that we will be paying for things. And if we don't use the chip, we're going to find it very hard to get by. This is the trap. Global fiat money is a global, a, a, a national digital currency in any country is, if you were to liken it to a game of chess, it's check. If it is a global digital currency that is, of course, sponsored by the government, sponsored by the IMF, whatever, and then it is all trackable and they can flick a switch to turn it on and off for an individual person. If they say a criminal is on the loose, well, you don't want to allow the criminal to have resources and be able to spend money. So if you want to, if you want to stop them, then you just turn off their chip. Boom, they're done. That sounds pretty good. For us law-abiding citizens, right? We like that. But <laughs> it's always a slippery slope, folks. It's always a slippery slope, isn't it? Yes, it is. COVID-1984. All this does is it gives governments around the world more reasons to track us, to intrude, and all this kind of stuff. And it's, it's just, uh, here we go to the next stage. It's being accelerated. But how about the shopping mall market? Yeah, you don't know what I'm going to tell you here. This is going to surprise you. So I always talk about being a direct investor. Uh, commandment number three, thou shalt maintain control. And if you don't maintain control, when you relinquish control to somebody else, you buy into a fund, a REIT, or a real estate investment trust, or a stock, or a bond, or uh, any kind of private placement memorandum, or a syndication, or any kind of deal, like someone else's deal. You give control to somebody else, Wall Street, whatever it is, you give control. Well, you tend not to feel the bumps in the road, the problems that occur, but you do feel it when you just 
make less money or you lose money on your investment. Well, here is a roundabout example of that that's hugely significant. A lawsuit has been filed, a lawsuit that says giant mall REITs, real estate investment trusts, are licensed to spy. A sweeping class action lawsuit claims that malls are swiping data from vehicle license plates. This according to The Real Deal. Los Angeles' biggest mall landlords are beating back a consumer lawsuit related to license plate recognition technology. The world of big data, folks. Here we are. Here we are. The class action says uh, that mall patrons are suing because of smart parking security companies and mall landlords that have captured their license plate images And they did, of course, they didn't authorize this. And of course, the mall owners claim that they did it for security purposes because it's always to protect us. That's what the government always says, too. The government's always protecting us. Now the mall owners are protecting us. And here the article goes on to say, quote, this is about the worst time for mall REITs to be hit with legal actions. Indoor malls aren't open in L.A. under a month-old executive order by... Corrupt Governor Gavin Newsom, the article didn't say corrupt, I threw that in for fun, he's a weasel, and the mall landlords themselves have filed lawsuits against non-paying tenants. So, of course, they're suing their tenants for the rent they're not paying, because the tenants defaulted on the rent, and now there's a class action suit from consumers saying, hey, you didn't have any right to, to scan my license plate, stick it in a database, And, of course, what do they do with that data? Who knows? But I'm sure they'll find out in discovery in the lawsuit. And they'll find out things probably like they uh, matched them with other database records and hired big data companies to come in and tell them who was shopping at their mall and identify them. And maybe they even combined it with a facial recognition database. Who the heck knows? It's all absolutely crazy. But, but, think about this. If you're an investor in these mall REITs, these real estate investment trusts, a very popular investment, by the way, if you're an investor and now they're having to spend all this money, number one, suing their tenants who don't pay rent, and then they're getting sued by these consumer groups in this giant sweeping class action lawsuit for their license plate scanning practices. You know, when you relinquish control, when you're not a direct investor, You are losing money because of all of these things. What happens when there's a sexual harassment lawsuit or an employment discrimination lawsuit or, you know, the board of directors is just taking more than they should or the CEO is embezzling money or the treasurer or whatever? You're losing money. Be a direct investor. Just buy some properties of your own and control them. And better yet, join our empowered investor inner circle which I will be inviting you to shortly. We invited the people that attended Meet the Masters first. And by the way, I love it, people. You're having a good old time in that group so far, and and we're just beginning. This is just the beginning. We haven't even gotten into the specific market resources yet. We're just talking about which loan should I pick? Which property should I refi? I got a whole bunch of savings with my tax assessments, outlook on the economy. This is great. This is going to be one of the best things we've ever done is the Empowered Investor Inner Circle. Don't worry. Worry not, folks. We will invite all the rest of you to it here shortly. 
All right. So without further ado, let's get to our guest and let's talk about uh, some interesting issues. And uh, just a reminder, this interview was recorded just a few months ago. You know, if there's some mention of current events, just adjust your time frame for that. But I think you'll find it to be very, very fascinating. If you need us, reach out. In the U.S., you can call 1-800-HARTMAN. Worldwide, jasonhartman.com. It's my pleasure to welcome economist Lawrence Ball. He's professor of economics at Johns Hopkins University, research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research, a former consultant to the International Monetary Fund, previously a visiting scholar at the Federal Reserve, Bank of Japan, Bank of England, and the Reserve Bank of New Zealand. He's also author of The Fed and Lehman Brothers, Setting the Record Straight, on a financial disaster. Lawrence, welcome. How are you doing? Uh, thank you. Well, like everybody, I'm doing <laughs> as well as I can under the bizarre circumstances. I, I'm guessing they sent you home and you're not at the university, right? Uh, indeed. I'm sitting in my apartment and uh-huh. uh, uh, watching a lot of videos. Yeah. Like <laughs> as, as we all are, as we all are in these uh, trying times. Where are you located? What city? I'm in Baltimore. I, I teach at the Johns Hopkins campus in Baltimore. Okay, so you're actually at the campus usually. Good. Well, hey, we talked a little bit off air before we started about the pandemic, the response to it. I said to you that I thought the response was sort of bigger than the problem. But, you know, maybe I'm wrong about that. You know, none of us want to pretend to know anything about the public health and the clinical side of this. We're strictly talking about the economic impact. What are your general thoughts to start us off? Well, my general thoughts, again, I think neither you nor I can judge the medical necessity of closing everything down and everybody staying home. But I think from the point of view of economists or people in business, we can just take it as a fact that the public health authorities have decided that the economy or large parts of the economy have to shut down for a while. I I think what economists can be sure of, and really it's just common sense, is that that's going to be hugely harmful to the economy and cause a big uh, recession, certainly for as long as um, we have so much shut down and quite possibly with effects that last for a while after that. Mm-hmm. And 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 then the corollary of that is that we need uh, a very strong and very uh, rapid response by policymakers. Right, right. And are, are we getting a strong enough and active enough response from policymakers or, you know, is the jury still out? We're still in the early stages, obviously, but... I have been somewhat encouraged that uh, Congress and the administration seem to be moving very quickly on a big fiscal stimulus package. I mean, comparing this to 2008, the obvious comparison, you know, the Obama stimulus happened a number of months after the height of the financial crisis and it, it was very controversial. It passed with no Republican votes. It was, in retrospect, probably too small. And there actually seems to be, you know, one was thinking that it could that bipartisanship bipartisanship was dead forever. But it seems as though, to some degree, everybody is on the same page that we need a huge fiscal stimulus very quickly. Uh, I mean, there's certainly possibility for squabbling over the details that derails things or slows things down. I I hope not, but I'm hopeful that the checks will start going out in the mail and other things will start happening and that that will cushion the 
the the problem. What's really interesting about this is that uh, it may be the first self-imposed recession possibly ever. <laughs> I, I don't know. Maybe I haven't studied enough recessions, but I, I can't think of one in the past that was really self-imposed like this one is. I think that's absolutely right. Or a different way to put it, it is it's the first in a sense, desirable recession. Mm -hmm. I mean, usually when we've had recessions and people have gone home from work and not been productive and not had income, that's been been an unambiguously bad thing, Mm -hmm. you know, because of some mishap in some sector of the economy. But here we're making a conscious choice, or the public health authorities are, that it's worth the cost of people not working and producing in order to protect health. So you're right. I mean, desirable is a funny word to use, but you, you know what I, I mean. Get, Under I the get circumstances, the idea. Sure. It, it's better to have production go down. But the, the risk, of course, is that, or one of the risks is that it could go down by more than desirable amount, that there will be spillovers to other parts of the economy and over time, which will greatly magnify the economic loss beyond what's strictly necessary for public health reasons. Mm-hmm. You know what I've been pondering is the idea that, you know, as soon as Mitt Romney came out and said, you know, send everybody a $1,000 check, well, I guess now that's increased 20%, we're going to get a $1,200 check. So that's great. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing mine in the mail. But, you know, this almost might be a prelude to a universal basic income and or some sort of nationalized housing assistance program like the Section 8 program that's been around for so long. Do you have any thoughts on that? Or have you made that connection like I have or thought about Uh, that at all? It could be. Of course, in the Great Recession, the Great Depression of the 1930s, there were at the time extreme policy measures which had a lasting impact, you know, Social Security and a lot of the federal programs or legacies of that. And it's certainly possible that we could ratchet up the level of government involvement in the economy in this episode as well. I actually saw, I forget where I saw this, somebody in the internet was saying the era of small government is over, turning around Bill Clinton's talk about the era of, I mean, that's right, there's been a lot of talk way before this about the idea of a universal income. And this- I had Andrew Yang on the show, uh, you know, uh, Ah, several ah. months ago. So yeah, yeah, yeah. he's he's out there promoting- Yeah, so once once that's introduced under emergency circumstances, people, it certainly is conceivable, people will say, well, why not just make it permanent? Yeah, yeah. And just for the record, I'm not for any of this. I like a small government, but I don't think that matters what I think. (laughs) (laughs) We are living in a new territory. And, you know, it almost seems like because so much of the economy around the world has become so financialized that you're just going to have these cycles. You're going to have big swings because there's a lot of leverage in the system. And that that increases the volatility or at least the speed at which things happen, right? Yes. Although so far, knock on wood, I have not seen huge problems in the financial system. I I mean, there have been some things that have flared up, but the Fed, I think, is on, on top of that, you know, with the commercial paper facility. And, you know, so far, there's nothing that isn't manageable that's happened financially. Mm-hmm. Although, of course, you know, who, who knows if we go down the road further. Right. Uh, you yeah. know, if, 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 if lots and lots of people are in financial distress and don't pay back their mortgages and lots of businesses don't pay back their loans, then, then the, the lenders 
uh, are going to get in trouble. And as you say, they're leveraged. And, you know, then, then we could start to have something hearkening back towards 2008 when big financial institutions get in trouble. Well, that's a good segue to your book and to making, you know, any comparisons or parallels. This is such a different kind of environment we're in now. A lot of people out there are saying we were due for a correction anyway. The stock market was overvalued. We were in the everything bubble. And this is just going to get us there faster to that correction. When I likened it to a to a bear in hibernation, which is what the economy's in, it's kind of going into hibernation mode. You know, that bear, it can wake up with a yawn or it can wake up with a roar, I guess, right? You know, the question is, how long does it take us to get back? We'll certainly get through this. But, you know, what does the recovery look like and, and how quick does it happen, you know? Those are great questions, which, of course, nobody really knows because right. this is totally unprecedented. I mean, I'd say, first of all, if if we, we had a bubble or an overheating of the economy and needed some correction, we certainly didn't need this much of a correction, right. <laughs> uh, you know, with the stock market falling that much or for that matter with, you know, with me and hundreds of millions of other people sitting in their apartments, not, not going to work. You know, we, we've had way more than anything that would have been necessary just as a natural correction aside from the virus. Yeah. As far as the bear waking from hibernation, that's a great question. It's, of course, it all depends on, you have to premise it on what you assume about the public health situation, but let's just say for the sake of argument that everybody stays indoors for three months and then there's the all clear, you can go back to your normal activities. Will everything snap back at once? And there's reason for concern there because, you know, we already see people and firms and possibly banks getting into financial distress. And that's after one week and after three months, there might be a lot of financial distress and, you know, who knows, bankruptcies. Um, that's the kind of thing which cannot be turned on and off uh, easily. So, you know, while we're in the shutdown period, it's important very important for policymakers to try to minimize how much disruption there is to the finances of people and firms and banks so that we can get back to normal swiftly when when it's possible. Is And, and I meant to make that segue. We did, sort of didn't quite do it because of my big <laughs> compound question there. So we'll get to it in a moment. But can the government and the Fed solve the problem by simply just creating more money, more QE, more stimulus? Or are, are they running low on ammunition? Well, certainly the government, the Fed, the Fed's a little trickier, but the government, I think, has plenty of ammunition in being able to write checks and send them out. So, so obviously the, that, that doesn't solve the health problem, but as far as mitigating the economic effects, really is pretty simple that when people or firms are in financial trouble, that sending them a lot of money will, will help a lot. And the, the federal government can do that. Of course, it, it makes uh, the long-term debt problem even more of a problem, but that's maybe a problem for to start thinking about again six months from now. So it's, the, the government can do a lot of good in cushioning the economic impact. Okay. But is the Fed running out of ammunition? So you said the government, but you made a distinction, a real yeah, distinction. Yeah. Well, between so the, the Fed, 
I mean, interest well, rates are so low, rate, or are they just too low it, already to do anything? Much? Well, so, yes, yeah. certainly they've run out of the interest rate ammunition. Yeah. I mean, interest rates across the board are close to zero and right. can maybe go a little bit below zero, but not, you know, for all practical effects, you know, the first line of defense of cutting interest rates, that, that's been used up. Mm-hmm. I haven't heard too much discussion about this a little bit. You know, the, the Fed could intervene more aggressively d- directly in creating credit. I mean, people have floated ideas about the, the Fed should start lending money to, to businesses or people, or, or maybe, maybe do it through the banking system, lend money to banks on the condition that they lend it on. I mean, I mean that, that would be quite radical. I mean, actually directly providing credit to firms and people is not the role of the Fed traditionally. But you know, if we think this is really a once in a century uh, disaster, then we should maybe think outside the box. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Okay. So getting to your book a bit here, which is uh, fascinating, by the way, it was recommended by a guest we had. I think we published that show just, uh, well, yeah, just recently. And that was Michael Ainsley, who was chairman of, mm-hmm. of Lehman Brothers Holding Company and oversaw dispersing assets and so forth during the bankruptcy. Tell us about 2008 and some of the backstory, some of the things people may not know about, uh, you know, any, anywhere you want to take it, you know, what caused the crisis. There's all kinds of talk about that, obviously, the last 12 years, or sure, specifically sure. Lehman, uh, whatever you'd like. Sure. Well, I guess, you know, the very condensed version would be there was the housing bubble and a lot of losses on real estate investments by the big Wall Street firms. And they were extremely leveraged and they got in trouble and were on the brink of bank bankruptcy. And then the critical issue was the Federal Reserve going to rescue these institutions. And the way it played out, they rescued everybody but Lehman Brothers. And I'm of the school of thought that it's good that they rescued everybody else. You know, we could have had if if a whole bunch of big banks had gone down, we could have had a 1930s style depression. Uh, on the other hand, you can say the glass is half empty or half full. The failure to rescue Lehman was a was a big mistake, and and uh, I think the whole financial crisis and Great Recession could have been much more mild if they had treated Lehman the same way they treated Bear Stearns and AIG and the other firms they they rescued. You know, you have to wonder if, if just if the relationship with Dick Fold and Hank Paulson were better, that might have changed the world. It just it was like it just literally came down to sort of two guys and their personalities to some extent, didn't it? You know, I've heard that story. I think that is maybe a little overstated. Mm-hmm. My, I mean, I, I do think it was a political decision primarily by Henry Paulson not to rescue Lehman. Even though legally it was the Fed's decision, I think for whatever reason they were taking guidance from him. And I, I think, though, the main thing that influenced Paulson was not anything personal. It was the political situation at the time Lehman got in trouble. And in a sense, Lehman's bad luck was to be the second in line in uh, having a crisis, the, the first being Bear Stearns, which the Fed rescued, but then actually Bear Stearns and then Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac right before Lehman, you know, that created a huge political backlash about about bailouts you know, across the political spectrum. Mm-hmm. You know, Bernie Sanders was talking about socialism for the rich. You know, the conservatives are just talking about just plain socialism with the government uh, taking over banks. You know, people of all stripes were saying this is this is horrible. And I think that's what led Paulson to 
feel that politically he couldn't rescue Lehman. I mean, after that, of course, the next day they rescued AIG mm-hmm. and and a bunch of started helping everybody. I, I think because I think to the credit of Bernanke and Paulson, you know, while they made a mistake on September 15th or September 14th, when they told Lehman they had to declare bankruptcy, they realized pretty quickly that it was a mistake and, and they changed course and prevented things from getting much worse. Mm-hmm. Of course, that's not the story they tell. They, they say that their hands were tied legally. There was no way they could rescue Lehman. But the main point of my book is that that's, that's not, uh, that doesn't fit reality, that they, they could have rescued Lehman if, if they'd wanted to. Right, right. So, you know, what else happened that maybe we don't know as, you know, so many people have studied this story and other related stories to the Great Recession over the last, uh, you know, 10 to 12 years. What would be some of the surprises that, uh, you know, might surprise people that they didn't see in a movie or a, or read in a book, you know? Well, maybe one thing to say is, again, the, the crisis and the recession really didn't have to be nearly as bad. You know, again, there there was the housing bubble. There were problems with real estate. There were going to be some costs to that. But I think that kind of thing has happened before. I think about what if the Fed had rescued Lehman and we, we hadn't had the meltdown on Wall Street. I think that 2008 might have been might be remembered the way we remember the savings and loan crisis of the 1980s or the bursting of the dot-com bubble in the early, in, uh, the early 2000s. I mean, those were things where there were mishaps in the financial sector and a lot of drama and some effect on the real economy. You know, there were mild recessions, but it was really sort of an unnecessary, unforced error to allow Lehman to go down. And then all the things that flowed from that, the run on the money market funds, the, the you know, the, the different kinds of panic, which the, the harm to the economy was magnified way beyond what it had to be. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. And it's really too bad uh, that, it, that it did go that way. How did the economy, like, it's almost maybe hard to see this now, but let's just go back to the economy prior to the coronavirus news. You know, it mm-hmm. wasn't that long ago. Were we due for a correction? We kind of alluded to that earlier when we were talking, but, you know, were, were we due for a, a, a serious correction? Or what are your thoughts about uh, the way things were going then? You know, and, I, I, and I'm talking we about were... uh, three three to four weeks ago. <laughs> right, yeah. right, right. Ancient, ancient history. Ancient history, yeah. Um, I don't think we were due for a big correction, certainly in in the real economy. I mean, maybe 3.5% unemployment is not sustainable. You know, maybe it had to drift up to 4.5% at some point. But, you know, the fact, I mean, there, there's the cliche that people repeat that, rece- that that expansions don't die of old age. I mean, there, there's no reason that just because the economy's been growing for 12 years that it's due for something bad to happen. So, so you're you know, not, any, any like more, you wouldn't buy into the, the sort of the business cycle theory then it sounds like. No, not a deterministic. I would say, you know, it's the same as if, if, if you're a careful, good driver and you drive around, you could have an accident at, at any time. But if you tell me, oh, you, you haven't had an accident in five years, I wouldn't say, oh, no, you're due for an accident. Right. Yeah. Um, Statistically, uh, you are, but <laughs> right. Yeah. Got it. Well, so, so, someday. But the yeah. fact that uh, the fact that you've been driving safely for five years would make me less concerned rather than more concerned mm-hmm. about you having an accident in the near future. Right. And, and, and similarly, I think the fact that the economy has been doing well for the last 12 years minus two weeks, you know, would, would have been reason to 
you know, be somewhat optimistic about mm -hmm. keeping things steady. Yeah. So where do you think we go next? Uh, just wrapping it up with any anything you want to say, maybe a question I haven't asked you, uh, you know, anything anything about the book, the Great Recession or current day? Well, maybe I'll say, I mean, going going back to the book, which is where I probably have the comparative advantage of no, <laughs> I've studied it a long time. Mm -hmm. Getting back to your question of what do people not know, I think, you know, one message of the of the book is just that you should not believe what Ben Bernanke, Hank Paulson, and Tim Geithner have said about the Lehman episode. They have in, you know, in various books and speeches and so on and their memoirs, they've developed a narrative about what happened with Lehman. We tried to rescue them. They didn't have enough collateral. This was inevitable. And that just is not what happened in reality. Uh, you know, the reality is really quite different that they lost their nerve politically. And that's why Lehman wasn't, wasn't rescued. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah very but as far as where we go from yeah. where, where we go uh, today from the, from the current, you know, the virus, I think from an economic point of view, just, you know, I really hope I, you know, I'm following this pretty closely, like a lot of people. And just today, you know, the Democrats and the Republicans have differences about who gets how much money, you know, just some people get 1200 and some people get more or less depending on their income. And, you know, those are fine issues to debate about in principle, but I hope that they are very compromised minded and just get something done very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And they're going to have to do something right after that. I mean, unless, unless this sort of shelter in place ends in two or three weeks, they're going to need another check pretty pretty shortly after that. I, I mean, it's you yeah, know that that's true. Yeah, that's not going to go very far. Absolutely. All right. Well, hey, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, did you want to give out a website or uh, any resource? Well, I guess I have my uh, Johns Hopkins website, the Johns Hopkins Economics Department, or you could which you can find by googling my name, Lawrence Ball, Lawrence with a U. I have resisted Twitter, uh, <laughs> I, uh, so just my old-fashioned website is my only online presence. Good stuff. Well, Lawrence Ball, thank you so much for joining us. The book is uh, available in all the usual places, The Fed and Lehman Brothers, Setting the Record Straight on a Financial Disaster. Lawrence, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening. Please be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss any episodes. Be sure to check out the show's specific website and our general website, hartmanmedia.com, for appropriate disclaimers and terms of service. Remember that guest opinions are their own. And if you require specific legal or tax advice or advice in any other specialized area, please consult an appropriate professional. And we also very much appreciate you reviewing the show. Please go to iTunes or Stitcher Radio or whatever platform you're using and write a review for the show. We would very much appreciate that. And be sure to make it official and subscribe so you do not miss any episodes. We look forward to seeing you on the next episode.